Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here at the 10 a.m. service, my home service for many, many years um, as I was growing up here. My name is Samuel Foster. For those of you that don't know me, it really is a privilege to be opening God's Word with you all this morning. Um, I'd like to start off by sharing something about myself. Um, From a very young age, I've always known something about myself. I've known that I don't like doing the same things as other people. You see, if I do the same things as someone else, there is a small chance, in fact, in some cases, a very, very large chance that they will be better at it than me. And there is a hardwired part of my brain that longs for greatness. And I just can't stand the thought of someone being better than me at something. I'm sure many of you over the years have seen examples of me doing this, but I'd like to share one with you from when I was eight years old. I remember this quite vividly. I was sitting in the car with my two siblings and my mother. I'm the youngest of three. Um, We'd just been to guitar lessons for my brother. We'd previously been to my sister's piano lessons earlier on in the week. The standard thing parents do to try and drum some talent into their children that one day they might be rich and famous and leave them in a life that they can grow accustomed to. Sorry, Dad, I'm in ministry. Um, and my mum, she turned from the, from the driver's seat of what was then a Holden Jackaroo, um, and she said, Sam, what instrument would you like to learn? The day had finally come. I'd been sitting in waiting rooms while my siblings played music of some description. We were young, so it wasn't that great at the time. Um, The day had finally come. And in my mind, I kind of wanted to play the guitar. But as I've mentioned, I don't want to pick the same things as other people. And my brother was learning the guitar. He was also learning the drums at the time, and my sister was making attempts at learning the piano, um, and my mum could already play the piano. Um, so I had, I had no idea what to pick. I'd, I'd actually previously thought about this question. I thought, what instrument do I want to learn if the day comes when my parents ask me? And my young brain, in a panic, because I wasn't prepared, just threw out the first obscure instrument that I could think of, the saxophone. And in what was a great moment of looking back now, poetic justice, when I got home, my dad pulled his old saxophone out of the cupboard because it was an instrument that he knew. Um, So in my attempt to escape doing the same thing as other people, I had fallen victim to doing the same thing as my father. And it it actually led to a great Uh, father-son bonding moment where we could learn the instrument together because dad hadn't picked it up in many, many years um, and it was great fun. But what I want you guys to get from this is as humans, we desire greatness. We desire to be great. But in our sinful human desires, it's not just greatness that we're pursuing. We're trying to be the greatest. The passage I've been given to preach on today deals with this idea, the idea of being great. Specifically, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. But before we get too far into this, how about we pray? So please bow your heads and join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that we can gather around it as your people and try and learn what your son wants to teach us. Please help us to walk away from today knowing just a little bit more about the world around us, hopefully a little bit more about ourselves and the way that you want us to live within that world. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do over the next 15 minutes or so is delve into this passage. I want us to understand the story, figure out how the disciples were feeling, and then look into how it applies to us in the 21st century. So as always, I hope you guys have your Bibles open. I did hear a rumor that the new Bibles have arrived, so it's very, very exciting. You get to try those out a lot today because I think it's quite a short reading, so we're just going to read the entire thing again. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, this is Jesus, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he had placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. We have quite a fascinating story here, an interaction, albeit one that's quite one-sided, with the disciples not really saying anything. It's taking place in a house in Capernaum. And it's fundamentally, as, we're, as I want to break this down, it's made up of three sections of, that are quite clearly separated. We have verses 33 and 34, which set the scene and pose a question. We have verse 35, which is Jesus' response. And then we have verses 36 and 37, which is Jesus' clarification of what he means by his answer. So in our first section, this is verses 33 and 34. We have Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, walking into a room where his disciples are just chilling out. You can imagine it, close your eyes, they're sitting around chatting, there's 12 people in a room, it's probably quite noisy, and Jesus asks them a question, what were you arguing about on the road? And as we're told in the passage, the disciples say nothing. You can imagine that. You can almost feel the tension in the air. The disciples all at once realized that what they were talking about, arguing about, was something that perhaps they shouldn't have been. And what were they talking about on the road? What were they discussing, arguing? Verse 34, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. I want you guys to cast your minds back to the very start of our series on Mark. Remembering back to chapter 1, you can open it up and have a bit of a read if you find yourself lapsing out of focus during my sermon. At the beginning of Jesus' miracles, because a bit of context for this discussion the disciples were having on the road is that Jesus has been to Capernaum before. It was where the miraculous healings kicked off. People from all over came to see him to the point where he basically had to sneak out at night to get a bit of time to pray, avoiding those who were looking for him so that he might spread his gospel elsewhere. To the people in Capernaum, Jesus was a star. He was this great healer. And the disciples, these 12 men that had followed him around, they were his boys 
spelt B-O-I-S, <laughs> for the younger people in the room. They were his wingmen. They were his group. Their thoughts were still on Jesus as this great leader who was going to bring them fame and glory and defeat the Romans with an iron fist. But in the verses just before our reading today, Jesus had flat out told them that the Son of Man was going to die. And the disciples refused to learn more. It says, But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Always before, we'd seen the disciples, when they didn't understand something, they're fundamentally clueless most of the time. They don't tend to get things that are going on. But one thing they do really well is when Jesus does something confusing, because they're close to him, they pull him aside and say, look, look, man, we had no idea what was going on there. Do you reckon you can explain it? But not this time. Always before, they pulled him aside, asked for clarification, but not in the case of his death. For they were afraid of the answer that they might receive. I suspect that by this point, deep down, they understood what Jesus meant. That a part of them was starting to grasp what his purpose was, but they still rejected it. As Peter spoke on two weeks ago with the transfiguration of Jesus, the disciples wanted to set up tents. They wanted to bring heaven down to earth. They were focused on this world. The disciples on the road to Capernaum were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus calls them on this. What were you arguing about on the way here? And the disciples are silent because in the presence of Jesus, someone they've proclaimed to be the Messiah and the Savior, their worldly bickering seems insignificant and it falls away. This brings us into our second section, our second section of today's passage, Jesus' response to their desires. And it's certainly a fascinating one. It's not one you'd expect, and it's not one we see a lot of the time when dealing with something that most people would openly consider is a sinful desire, because Jesus doesn't reject their desire for greatness. He doesn't cast it off out of hand. Rather, he takes it. And he tries to redirect their focus. Because the desire for greatness is God-given. Look back to the creation narrative in Genesis. Cast your minds back to Sunday school. Mankind is created, this is a bit simplistic, but as the pinnacle of creation. God made the animals, the land, the light and the sea, not necessarily in that order. And finished with his image bearers. Formed from dust. Jesus says there is nothing wrong with desiring greatness. We were made for it. But sin, sin has twisted our definition of what makes something or someone great. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Jesus says there is nothing wrong with desiring greatness, but there is something fundamentally wrong with the disciples' definition of what makes someone great. And I think with your definition and my definition as well. And if you're sitting there wondering, 
what does greatness mean? Sam, you've been saying this word, you've probably said it 50 times already in this sermon, yet you haven't taken the time to define the word. How can we know what you're talking about without defining the word? Well, that's because I want to let Jesus do it for me. This brings us nicely into verse 35. Look with me. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first that is the greatest, must be the very last, that is the least. What? That's confusing, right? That's the answer? That's the answer we've been waiting for? This statement is confusing when you read it. You get the general vibe. It's a very Christian-sounding sentence, isn't it? The first shall be last. But when looking at what Jesus actually says, it's confusing. It's a paradox. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in primary school, I was forced to do running races. I'm not really much of a sportsman myself, so I would always kind of fall towards the back. And I was acutely aware of the fact that by coming last, I was not coming first. You cannot come first and last. And I spent a bit of time thinking about this. Because the only way that that makes sense is when you consider that we're looking at this from two different points of view, two different viewpoints. We have God's kingdom, and we have this earthly kingdom in which we reside. The only way you can simultaneously be first and last is if you're looking at it from two different points. Jesus is saying that whoever wishes or strives or desires to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven God's kingdom must be the least in this worldly kingdom. They must serve those around them and make themselves low. Interesting here is the use of the term servant. We often throw that term out there, but if Jesus in his context wished to portray ultimate submission, there are plenty of other words he could have used. He could have said slave ultimate submissiveness, forced to obey, employee, paid to obey, worker, but rather he uses the term servant. For we are slave to Jesus Christ through his sacrifice for us, yet not necessarily our fellow brothers and sisters. Rather, we should be servants, not only to those that we choose, but all. Jesus says to his disciples, if you wish to be great, that's fine. Happy for that. If that is your goal, you want to be great, go for it. But reject your sinful heart which says that greatness comes from deeds because greatness comes from service. Serving those around you. For it's not stature your worldly achievements, your bank balance that defines greatness, but rather your willingness to humble yourself. This leads us neatly into the third section of today's reading, which is the last two verses, where to illustrate this point, Jesus looks at the crowd around him and calls a child close. He pulls the child in, holds him in his arms. The ultimate example of what Jesus is trying to convey to these disciples. 
When we're talking of service, who should we serve? Jesus could have called anyone in this moment. He's done it in the past. He could have pulled a blind man close and given him a hug. Could have pulled a prostitute close, a leper, someone who was sick, someone who couldn't walk and held them close. But instead, he chose a child. Why a child? I don't know about you guys, but in my personal Bible reading at home, I love that word when dealing with the Gospels. Why? Whenever the Savior of the universe, whenever Jesus Christ says anything, whenever he does anything, ask yourself that question, why? And you can spend hours studying a single passage because he's so deliberate. It's so helpful. Those of you that are parents and have children will know, and I've been told this, and it seems correct. Some people might still consider me a child, so I had to look to some outside sources to understand this one. Children, at least when they are especially young, don't say thank you. They can't offer to pay you, and in the case of with parents, you don't get to choose when you serve your children. I was listening to a podcast this week where a pastor with multiple children, much, a pastor that's much older than myself, said that there are three great moments in the life of a child for a parent. One, that is necessary for them to be called a child, and two, that you hope and pray for. When they're born, when they are reborn through Christ, and when they get their driver's license. When you first see them in that hospital room, when they find Jesus, and when they finally achieve independence from you to the extent that you don't have to drive them all over the countryside anymore, to things like those music lessons I mentioned earlier. Children are an ultimate example of service without reward. And Jesus follows up this example of service by saying this in verse 37. Look with me. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The disciples were men. It's very easy to forget, but they were men. And in their society, children barely classed as human. They couldn't work, they couldn't contribute, and they most likely, sadly, wouldn't survive past the age of five. If they did, then they had a good chance of making it to 30, but not much further past that. Jesus said to these men, who were bickering about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, that if they wish to pursue greatness, that's fine, but greatness is defined by who you are willing to serve and what you expect to get from it. Because children take sacrifice for granted. It's expected. They cannot survive on their own. And whoever is willing to welcome and comfort a little child, someone helpless, someone who can't or perhaps won't say thanks or pay you back, is welcoming Jesus. Children have this amazing ability to understand Jesus' sacrifice for them on the cross because they get things sacrificed for them on a daily basis. They understand it on a fundamental level. And whoever is willing to welcome and comfort a little child someone that can't pay you back, is welcoming Jesus. And then we're told not only Jesus 
but God the Father who sent him. So, Richmond Anglican, what does this mean for us? We all want to be remembered. It's why people put handprints in concrete foundations of buildings. Such a strange thing to do. We all desire greatness. And Jesus is saying here that there's nothing wrong with that desire. To when you're reaching the end of your days to want to look back on your life and think that it was well lived. Because the pursuit of greatness is a God-given desire within us. But what we think makes someone great is fundamentally wrong. We need to make a conscious effort to shift our view from one of worldly success. Bank accounts, bank balances, cars, houses, jobs. To instead one of heavenly service. And not only that, we need to stop comparing ourselves to one another in unhealthy ways. You see, the disciples weren't just arguing about which ones of them were great. They were trying to determine which one of them was the greatest, the singular best at the expense of the others. Most of them, probably with the exception of Judas, would go on to do great things. They would die horribly for Christ. And yet they were bickering about which one of them was better than the others. And it's unfortunate because the world around us has this different bar, this different height to reach for success. It has a completely different scale to what Jesus is saying here. And it pushes and pushes and pushes us towards worldly desires. More stuff, more money, prestige, standing. We flock towards important people. If you desire to be great, make yourself last. And if you desire to live your life well, strive for humility. I'd like to take a moment to kind of define that word. As I mentioned before, definitions are important. Some of you might not quite understand what that word means, humility. In Australia, we tend to think that humility is putting yourself down. When someone compliments you, you say, oh, no, 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 I'm actually terrible at that thing. That's what we think humility is. But that's wrong. The focus of that thought is wrong. Because humility is not about you. Humility is about others. Humility is not defined by putting yourself down. It's putting others first. I was listening to a sermon this week about uh, what the, the greatest attributes to try and achieve as a Christian are. Um, and this person was putting together a list of what the first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Do you know what the, every single one of them was? Humility. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. The list goes on. Humility. Because how can you love anyone without humility? If you think you are better than somebody else, and to be honest, we've all had that thought. If you think you're better than someone else, how can you ever hope to love them? How can you accept that you are broken and sinful and need the Spirit working in your heart 
if you, do, if you don't have humility. You could go down the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They all stem from humility. The world's definition, your workplace's definition, your school's definition, your university's definition, your street's definition, perhaps even for some of you, your extended family or even your close family's definitions of what makes someone great or what makes your life great is wrong. It's fundamentally wrong and it leads to so much brokenness. Greatness comes from a willingness to serve. One of the the leading age groups for depression in men is retired men. Because once they, they lose that earthly purpose, they struggle to see what they're meant to be doing because their definition of what makes their life great is wrong. Greatness comes from a willingness to serve. A willingness to be low so that others might glimpse something so much higher. I'm going to keep this sermon short. I've only got one more page because I think the message, that message is sufficient. We strive too much with our hearts caught up in pride. I know I'm guilty of this so often. But we need to reject that, actively reject that. I want everybody in this room to honestly ask yourself the question, how am I serving those around me? And then follow it up by asking, what do I hope to get from that service? Perhaps you started serving and you did it for a couple of weeks and then no one thanked you, so you stopped. I know I've done that. No one noticed that you were doing something, so you were like, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to stop. We think... The sinful part of our hearts thinks that we are too great to do a job with no thanks. But it's the opposite. Because of our sinful hearts, we are not great enough to do a job without thanks. Just at Richmond Anglican, we have countless people in need. The names that were listed before during prayers. We have a church of nearly 250 people across the services. We have nearly 190 people spending their week here at track. We have nearly 100 people here on Friday nights. Do you guys know them all? I felt convicted because I sure don't. If we don't serve our Christian brothers and sisters, those that are also seeking humility... How can we serve anyone else? So my challenge to all of you and myself daily is to seek greatness. Seek greatness defined by service in humility. Something I've been struck by lately in my personal Bible readings is the failings of God's people in the Old Testament. If you read much of the history of God's people, and it doesn't take much to see it, it's a roller coaster ride. There are times when they are so on fire for God, it brings joy to your heart. They turn away and reject the world and turn to God, but sadly, it never lasts. And the reason 
that stands out to me is one generation draws close to God and then forgets to let their elders know, or they forget to let their children know, or their children forget to let their children know what it was like before God. And they discover the world anew, and they fall away. We have three services here at Richmond Anglican. Different people, different faces, different tempos. And we need to be serving one another. And I was struck this week by the question, how do we serve, truly serve those that we've never actually met? So in the spirit of service, my challenge to all of you and to myself is if you're able We have a really unique situation right now where it's the school holidays and kids' church isn't on. So the services are fairly equal in terms of child friendliness. So if you're able, visit a new service this next week. Meet some new people. And when you meet those people, think about how you can serve them. Because if you're striving for greatness, the way you go about that is to strive for service in humility. Maybe even this might be difficult for some. Still attend your normal service, but then go to another one as well. Make a day of it. It's the Lord's day. Go and visit two services on a Sunday. Strive for humility. Seek those you can serve. There is a young generation of this church. We have over a hundred people under the age of 21 on this site regularly that at least in the youth group, choose to be here. Praise God. On Friday nights, most of those children are under the age of 15. Praise God. But ask yourself, how can I help? Waves is constantly searching for leaders. Track that's happening this week, it's an amazing effort across all of the services, but there are 130 children on this site. Praise God. But ask yourself the question, how can I seek service in humility? Thanks, let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, thank you that you sent your Son down to this earth as an example for us of how we should live. Help us to strive for greatness each day. Help us to reach for humility. Help us to to pray at the beginning of each day that you will Grant us the opportunity to be low so that others might glimpse you. Help us to seek each day ways that we can serve those around us. Ways that we can be constantly putting others before ourselves, Lord, because that would be an amazing sight to see. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us over the next week to consider what changes we might make to our lives what changes we might make to the ministries we're a part of, what changes we might make to the way that we live our lives, the way that we have our morning coffee, Lord, so that we might seek greatness defined by humility, greatness defined by not needing to be thanked. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.